0: Welcome to the family with Dave Schrader. Andy, the Cyclops. Oh. Damn it. You <laughs> guys got it. Mom always goes second. Remember that. Okay, we're gonna <laughs> start again. Here we go. Welcome to the family with Dave Schrader.
1: The Cyclops, Catherine Brandt.
0: Andy Brandt Bernard. And married to the Cyclops, <laughs> <laughs> Tom. We'll be right back. Our special guest, Jeremy Dauber, will be with us. The book, American Comics, A History, The Sweeping Story of Cartoons, Comic strips, and Graphic Novels, and Their Hold on the American Imagination. Jeremy Dauber will join us right after this with the family. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest?
2: Uh, We're just trying to represent people who've been injured through no fault of their own. We're trying to talk to them before they talk to an adjuster or before they take a settlement that isn't something they should get based upon their injuries. By the way, for the first time ever, Coon Rapids Nissan was number one in the state and Burnsville was number two. Your Altima was actually one of the cars that put JLo on top.
0: To learn more about short term leasing, stop into Burnsville Nissan or Coon Rapids Nissan. We're rocking out, man. That's all I have to say. We are back. Let me know when uh, Mr. Dauber's ready to go, if you would, Andy. He is ready to go. Marvelous. Comics have conquered America from our multiplexes where Marvel and DC movies reign supreme to our television screens where comics-based shows like Walking Dead have become amongst the most popular in cable history to convention halls, bestseller lists, Pulitzer Prize winning titles, and MacArthur Fellowship recipients comics shape American culture in ways high and low, superficial, and deeply profound. Jeremy Dauber, how are you, sir? Hi, how are you? It's so great to be on the
3: show.
0: Well, it's nice to have you on the show. I can I can start out because I'm sure that every time you appear somewhere, people are thinking about their childhood and all the rest of it. And I was a huge fan of Richie Rich, but I never became a billionaire. What the hell is that all about,
3: Jeremy? <laughs> well, you know you have you have great taste. Uh, Richie Rich just was one of my childhood favorites as well. Love it. I'm, I'm sorry it didn't work out for either of us, but uh, you know, hopefully, <laughs> right. if I sell about. Hopefully, if you help me sell about ten billion books, then uh, then maybe it'll work out. You know, uh, no, I, you know, one of the things I love about um, this book, you know, is that everybody has some connection to comics in one way or sure. another. And it's been really a pleasure to talk about it with people uh, in all sorts of different ways.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Whether it be the Superman comics, which were oh, man, some of those go for huge amounts of money now. And
1: Archie and Veronica, Archie
0: and Veronica. Oh! <laughs> Absolutely, Betty and Veronica.
1: Or, yeah, what was the name of that comic book?
0: Yeah, that was Archie. But Archie, yeah. Was it
1: just Archie? Yeah.
0: <clears throat> okay. No, there were about 20 different Archie-branded yes, comic were, books. Yeah. Yes, that's true. I suppose that is true. Yeah, the sweeping story of cartoons, comic strips, and graphic novels and their hold on the American imagination. Yeah, I, it, I did. Now, Jeremy, did you see this? As you point out in the in the pre-cell. Did you see the Marvel and DC and The Walking Dead and the – you get on the – did you see stories like that taking over basically the universe? My God, they're everywhere.
3: Well, you know, it was funny because I was – you're absolutely right. They, they really are everywhere. And just increasingly, if you were like, like, like us, if you were a comics fan from way back, to see some of these stories – then playing themselves out, you know, on the small screen, on the big screen, you know, with just all of Hollywood, top talent, all of this kind of attention sort of being on it, that was amazing. But There was another amazing story that I wanted to, you know, that, that as you were saying, uh, I wanted to tell too, which was when we were kids. If you had said, you know, your schools were going to be teaching graphic novels, your elementary schools, they're going to be in every public library, they're going to be winning, you know, you wouldn't have believed it. That would have been, right. uh, you know, too right. good to be true. So. And those were both part of that same story, and I wanted to tell both parts of that together. Um, And so that was sort of part of what brought me to the book.
0: You know, it's so amazing looking back, and I never realized. Jeremy, you just made me realize things about my life that I've never realized. But uh, I had a fascination with Beetle Bailey when I was a little kid, and, and I never knew why. Looking back, though, it was the Vietnam era. So naturally I had an interest in the United States Army.
1: Yeah, you had a brother in the war. My brother
0: was a United States Marine over in Vietnam, so and there wasn't a United States Marine comic book. There was just an army one with Beetle Bailey. So there you go.
3: Yeah, and and you know, one of the interesting things about these these comic industries, you know, some of these Beetle Bailey lasts for decades and decades for example, is you know, how a comic that starts in one era, you know, really kind of uh, changes a little bit or modulates to to deal with sort of the issues that are going on uh, in in you know in other eras. Um, so you know Archie, for example, like you were talking about before, that's a product of the 1940s. Uh, but obviously, yeah. it has to change, develop, you know, over the over the decades as well. Even if they still want that same kind of Riverdale vibe, uh, uh, you know, seven eight decades later.
0: Now, Jeremy, you have to understand. I was only four years old when I'm about to make this reference. I was four years old. And I remember opening the Sunday paper, the newspaper, and going, "My God, Blondie Dagwood, or whatever her name was, Bums, Blondie Bumstead, was that Bumstead, her name?"
1: yeah.
0: I went, "My well, God, is she pretty?" <laughs> I'm looking <laughs> at a cartoon as a four year old, going, "Hey, <laughs> you know."
3: Well, you know, you got back, it seems like at four, you know, to the to the roots of of the Blondie's appeal. Uh, I talk about this in the book a little bit, but, you know, Blondie starts out as kind of a, a flapper strip, right? Remember that old word? And it was one of the best gags for sort of advertising the strip in the history of the comic strip that people sent, the the syndicate that was publishing Blondie sent a luggage, uh, a piece of luggage full of, like, women's undergarments and negligees and things like that to what? all the different newspapers, claiming, I, I promise, claiming that it was from <laughs> Blondie. It was like it got... You know, but what ended up happening, and it was like a strip about, you know, this flapper, and, and Dagwood was this sort of very rich guy. Um, and, you know, they ended up getting married, and Dagwood gets disinherited, and they moved to the suburbs. And then it becomes somehow, you know, that, that gets totally forgotten over the decades. And it becomes this kind of blondie and Dagwood we all grew up with, We're like this suburban kind of goofus dad and this, you know, this one who you know a homemaker. Um, and that's what we, you know, we just forgot about that earliest part. But but your instincts are dead on there. Uh, your four-year-old well,
0: instincts. I learned. A lot, I've learned a lot in the first seven minutes of this interview because looking <laughs> back now, uh, I because of comic books and comic strips, I learned that I was heterosexual because I was attracted to a blonde woman at four years old. I learned that I could handle dealing with this war in Vietnam by laughing at Beetle Bailey. So there were some funny things about the military to me. I I'd never even realized until just now, Jeremy, that I dealt with life. Is that what everybody does? They, they deal with life by being children, looking at comic strips and comic books?
3: I think that, you know, for a lot of kids, this comics medium is one of those first, uh, um, you know, uh, kinds of media that they encounter. Uh, in some fundamental, and it teaches all sorts of lessons, or it can. You know, this was one of those big questions about each of these comic scripts, comic books, when they came out. Is this teaching lessons about, let's say, fair play and being on the right side, and sort of standing up for justice and truth and you know in the American way, or what have you? Or is it saying, you know, like these comics, oh, you're going to get into mischief, you're going to cause problems, you know, you're you know? going to be sort of a right. you know cat's and jammer kid. Um, and, uh, you know, this was one of the reasons why these media sort of were a little bit controversial uh, when they came out and at different points. But but nobody on either side of the issue disagrees that they're profoundly shaping uh, and educational. There's no question about that. Everyone agreed with that. So you're 100% right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Jeremy. See, and I never even recognized that in my own brain that I did consider comic books and comic strips to be educational. Because I all every Sunday, and whenever a new uh, issue would come out, I would go to Hermes, which was a what do they call those back in the day? They're 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 not. Uh, you know those little stores—they were kind of general stores, I guess.
1: Okay, five
0: uh-huh. dimes. Yeah, Hermes is a five and dime or general store. I would get on there, and I—and I never realized that's how I, part in part, dealt with life by looking at things like yeah. that. That's—that's. That's, what? What? Do you know what the very first cartoon was? I have no idea.
3: Mickey Mouse? Well, you know, I mean, it, it depends how far you go back in America and in the world, because there's some sort of definition. But, you know, you could say, you know, you remember, we all learned about this in sort of elementary school, that, that uh, you know, colonial era, the time of the Revolutionary War, that snake that's cut into pieces, you know, that says join or die, uh, you know, this sort of uh, recruiting poster for the colonists in the Revolutionary War, that was a comic, fall mm-hmm. of the year, yeah. comic. I mean, you know, you have these crazy things, but we really think about this in some ways um, from these comics that appeared in these magazines around the time of the Civil War, uh, in a lot of ways. And that—that's this guy Thomas Nast, who was sort of one of the most famous political cartoonists in American history, still extremely influential to this day. Um, so maybe that's a good place to start the story. But then it gets to this kind of newspaper comic that you were talking about, sort of growing up with, like we all grew up with, and that's really around the turn of the 20th century. That's, that's, that's where so our story amazing. really takes the
0: You know, another thing I, I learned just now by reading uh, your bio is that I have a lot in common with a Columbia professor. I didn't even, I never knew yeah. that, Jeremy. Now I know.
3: There you go. There you go, yeah. That was a good have. And, you know, one of the things also that you were saying before that we have in common is, and this is, you know, places us in a particular time, right, of going to, Get our comics at a drug store or a general store, like you were saying, as opposed to yeah. a comic shop or right. you know the, or, or Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, uh, you know, in a hardcover. That was, you know, that was a very particular you know era of of what the comic book business was. It was sort of a, a, a mom and pop shop uh, and newsstand trade. Um, you know, and and part of the story I tell in the book is you know how where you get your comics changes and what that means to the kinds of comics that can be made.
0: You know, Jeremy, I look – or do I have to call you Professor Dauber now because I know you're a Columbia oh, no, here, professor? Here. Jeremy's good. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy's good. I Maybe I'm, I guess, uh, you know jumping a little ahead here or jumping too far, but all these things are spinning through my head now looking back and reading comics when I was a kid. It seems to me that you know, not only husbands and wives dealt with one another and this and that and the other thing, but the first black characters that I can remember were in comic books. I do remember that, well, especially you know, the, the little kid in Charlie Brown.
3: That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, and in fact, you know, you were talking about Beetle Bailey before. Um, yeah, it was interesting. More Walker, you know, introduces uh, Lieutenant uh, Flip. Uh, 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 right, he does that. Yep. You know, because he has this meeting with these uh, these black soldiers. Uh, no, excuse me. He has these meeting at Ebony Magazine. Excuse me. Um, and they say to him, you know, you are you are telling a story about you know the army. Um, and and you really, in the Vietnam era, and you're really not representing sort of the demographics of what the army looks like. And what Walker said, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, I have to introduce a character that represents that side of it, too. And thus, this new character was born. And really, as you say, I think introduces a new kind of representation to a wide swath of comics-reading kids and comics-reading public. And that's going on in Peanuts as well. Um, Sure. You know, Charles Schultz does it. Response to uh, uh, some correspondence from from fans saying you know we'd like to see a black character there uh, you know and that that dynamic is really important between sort of artist and audience.
0: Jeremy, I do remember Flip talking to uh, the Colonel, and this is a hundred years ago. Maybe I don't know. It was a long time ago, <laughs> but he's talking to him, and Flip's in a bad mood. He's just not feeling well, or he just he's just not in a great mood, or it's not crabby, but he's just not in a good mood, right? And they're talking, and at the very end, the last frame, the colonel looks at Flip, a black soldier, and says, why are you in such a black mood? And Flip looks at what would be the camera. In other words, he's in the cartoon looking out at you like, does he realize what he just said? I mean, even as a little kid, I knew that. That, Very educational, I thought. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: And I think that that gets, you know, not only is it sort of teaching lessons, Uh, But it gets to that wonderful interplay that comics does so well between text and image. You know, that's the kind of joke that it's kind of hard to do on paper in any other kind of medium. I mean, you could kind of do do it on TV, but it it sort of predates that kind of thing at the office, right? You could almost see uh, Steve Carell uh, doing something like that uh, in the office. Um, But, but, (laughs) you know, this predates that by decades, obviously, right, in the comics.
0: Jeremy, do you remember the one that really caught your attention? It was, was there a comic that the, the first one that ever caught your attention? And you went, man, this is amazing.
4: You know, uh,
3: I, I think I'm am a little younger than you, um, and the one that I remember just sort of tearing down the Sunday paper to get to, uh, you know, was Calvin and Hobbes. Oh uh, god, that dear. was <laughs> Andy. You know, yeah, I grew up with Calvin and Hobbes. I was very very upset when it. Uh, the run ended.
1: Yep. You wanted to write yeah. a letter.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't have been more than, what, like 10 years old when it ended? When did Calvin and Hobbes end?
1: His cat's name Tom uh, Yeah. Nice.
3: Yeah, it ended after, I was lucky enough that it ended, I don't remember the exact date, but it, it ended after I uh, was a little older, so I could sort of handle the loss a little mm. bit. But but not really. Because, 95. You know, it was such a, yeah. what, 95? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so, yeah, I, was so nine. I was already in college, right? um, but it you know it was such a as they would say in the movies right such a four quadrant strip. I mean it really mm-hmm. just appealed to children, to adults, everybody, and you know it was a, you know you don't normally get. Uh, God gave Watterson with both hands, you know, um, just a tremendous artist and also just one of the most brilliant comedians uh, of his or maybe any generation. Um, Just what a talent. And he's also never relinquished creative control over those characters even once, I don't think. He's never syndicated it in, uh, uh, well, not syndicated, but, you know, he's never had other authors continue it. He's never made a movie, a TV show, anything. It's just 10 years of the comic. And that's what you get. He never did he any
5: marketing of the of the items either. They never so. sold toys. There's the ones that you see right. out there, from my understanding, are all uh yeah. illegal. I think so. Wasn't yeah. he
1: angry because they reduced the size of the frames or something, and that's why he said goodbye? Oh really? I think that
3: I think I, that's, you're, you're exactly right. That mm-hmm. one of the things that he was very angry about was an effort uh, to kind of reduce uh, uh, um, you, know, you know, his size. That was something that, that people continued to do um, in the comics, in the newspaper business, to reduce the size of the strips. Mm-hmm. And there's a real plausible argument to be made that it really, uh, you know, killed off certain kinds of strips uh, that really depended on sort of beautiful art. And Watterson was very against it when he could. He sort of used his contracts to try and, you know, fight against it. But uh, I think, you know, he felt that in some ways the, the writing was on the wall. Um, but, you know, he gave us a great run. Um, And and my kids, I have little kids of my own, and they are looking over these book collections, and they still, you know, I hear giggling coming from the other room, and I know they're looking at Calvin and Hobbes. That's
1: such a great...
0: You know, Jeremy, what's really kind of sad is when I go out to the curb now to pick up our newspaper, the Star Tribune or the Pioneer Press in Minneapolis and St. Paul, it's about the size of a napkin now. Uh, And that was the big deal for me is going out and getting the newspaper as a little kid, And reading the comic section. Kids don't read the comic section anymore, do they? They watch television. That's Mm -hmm. what they do, correct?
3: Well, I I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, the the days of newspapers, of print newspapers, are really, you know, they're they're over in a lot of fundamental ways. And that's very sad to those of us who grow up. You know, I don't necessarily think that that means the end of kids reading comics on sort of a regular replenishing medium. They're just doing it sort of on screens. Um, there are comic places like Webtoons, um, you know, they're, they're, they're reading books by people like Raina Telgemeier or Dav Pilkey. Uh, you know, they're, there's, there's, uh, they're certainly watching a lot of more television, but, but they're doing these other things as well, and, and, you know, there's just a wide, tremendous variety of comics that are available to them. In certain ways, many, many more than we were able to see, even in the most packed comic supplement that we got in the newspapers as kids. Um, So it's both sad, but also there's some celebration involved, too.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Now, I do have to reference this because it it made a... Comics, cartoons made a big shift once the Japanese got a hold of them. (laughs) This anime thing is pretty amazing. Holy God.
3: I think, you you know, one of the things I talk about, the, the book is really about American comics, but you can't really right. talk about American comics without some of the influences that are on it from other countries. Right. Um, and, you know, it's an, it's an interesting story where, you know, we, uh, as Americans, really sent out some of our comics products all around the world, and, and, and perhaps most famously, although not only, you know, the comic strips, and specifically Walt Disney, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, the Japanese, you know, they saw Disney and they were enraptured with it, uh, particularly, right. you know, and, and, and their form, their manga, was really fundamentally influenced by that. Uh, and then it comes back to America uh, in this kind of altered form. And, you know, starting about, you know maybe a little bit less than a generation ago, manga becomes an essential influence and part uh, of what American comics readers are reading. Uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You can't tell that story. Uh, of American comics, without sort of thinking about that too, uh, right? You know, Absolutely. Yeah. Go
0: on. Go on. I'm so sorry. Go on. No, no, no. I, I, I'm fascinated by your take on that. You really spent a lot of time. What? What got you involved? First of all, did, did, obviously, you were a big fan as a child. Did you always want to tell this story? You,
3: you know, not necessarily. Although I think my 12 year old self or my 10 year old will be really happy with what's going on right now. <laughs> right. Um, right. But, but, you know, I really, you know, I, I, I read a lot of comics as a kid, uh, you know, mostly, as we're saying, sort of comic strips then superhero comics, then kind of left it, came back to it. Um, you know, I was right at the age where um, when I was ready to come back to it, the medium had kind of really moved again to sort of more adult comics, um, you know, and, and, and I was able to sort of learn more about this. And I said, you know what, there's a real story here that I'd like to try and teach in a class at Columbia. Um, and I was very lucky that um, the former president of DC Comics, this guy Paul Levitz, um, who had just stepped down, was looking for uh, an opportunity to team teach. So we spent a few years uh, we spent a few years teaching uh, a class together, which has been amazing. Uh, and then I said, you know what? Um, there's a book in this, uh, and that was uh, that was really how it started.
0: I got to read this paragraph. This is a great paragraph. Dauber's story shows not only how comics have changed over the decades, but how American politics and culture have changed them. Throughout, he describes the origins of beloved comics, champions neglected masterpieces, and argues that we can understand how America sees itself through though the through uh, whose stories comics tell. Um, Striking and revelatory, American comics is a rich chronicle of the last 150 years of American history. You're talking about uh, the Civil War there, uh, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, through that's the right. lens of its comic strips, political cartoons, superheroes, graphic novels, and more. See, I, I I agree. America did change because of comics, which, in my mind, it changed for the better. To tell you the truth,
3: I think that's right. You know, and one of the examples that I that I give in the book is that. Um, you know, uh, uh, comics, bec- in no small part, because the first people who were doing that wave of superhero comics in the late '30s and very early '40s were very largely Jewish. Not entirely, but very largely, they were more attuned to Hitler's menace than you know some parts of the rest of the United States. There's a lot of pro-isolationist sentiment in the United States, and I think that you know Captain America, for example, comes out before Pearl Harbor uh, with that first cover of smacking Hitler on the jaw. Um, and I really <laughs> think that, that helped. Yeah, you know, so I really think that helped get America, you know, ready to to enter the war, uh, which you know was an unambiguously good thing uh, to fight the Nazis. So, you know, I think you're right. You know, uh, so po- comics changed American politics, uh, and American politics changed comics too, right? I mean, it's uh, you know when you have uh, in the Vietnam era that we were talking about before. You have sort of an increasing uh, dis- you know, disillusionment with American government uh, in the wake of that. You know, you can see that in the comic books as well. Um, they become much less sort of, uh, you know, explicitly pro-American government, uh, in, you know, in a certain kind of way, many of them. So it's a very interesting story, and, you know, I, I hope it do justice to it in the book.
0: So... Jeremy, i got a very tough question for you, one that I could not answer in any way, shape, or form. So how did we get from laughing at comics politically to the cancel culture we have today? What the hell happened, Jeremy? <laughs>
3: Man. Well, uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that, uh, you know, is really sort of very good and very positive that's going on in comics, you know, is that you're having a very wa- a much wider opportunity ever than before for a whole bunch of different people to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, some of that has to do with technological factors. Uh, you know, for a long time, really, if you wanted to be in the mainstream comics business, or right, the corporate comics business, let's call it, you really had to live right near New York City. Because, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't send in your art, uh, you know, in time. Uh, by the mail to get a monthly kind of comic going. So, you know, that really meant that if you were someone who was living out in the middle of the country, if it meant that you were living in a different country, um, you know, you didn't have the right context, you just weren't part of those stories. Um, And people, as they always do, tend to work with people who they know, um, and that really closed things off. Nowadays, you know, with the Internet, if you, whoever you are, if you put something on uh, the Internet and you get, you know, 15 million people liking it, which is not impossible these days, you, people are going to, you know, the companies are going to pay attention to that, right? They're going to they're say, maybe we can use this. Um, and so you have this sort of much wider kind of uh, opportunity of representing stories. And, and as a fan of story, you know, I think that's tremendous, right? You get these, like you were saying yes. with Flip, right? You get these different perspectives that, you know, you hadn't thought about, and you learn, and you have different mm-hmm. stories. And especially when it comes to, you know, uh, characters that have been in the public eye for 80, 90 years, you know, they've churned through a lot of stories, so it's always nice to have some, some new uh, wellsprings uh, to, to, to have this. You know, sometimes well, but one of the reasons that some people come uh, to and have relationships with comics is not because of the only, or not only because of the newness, but also because of the familiar. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's uncomfortable for, for some people when, you know, they have a very set sense of what a character is or what a story should be or is. Uh, and, and, and they, they, they have different ones than they expected. Um, and, and that can lead to being upset. Um, you know, I mean, you you take as an example, uh, having nothing to do with sort of, you know, this from 30 years ago, um, when DC decided to kill off one of the Robin characters, Batman and Robin, Mm -hmm. and and let me tell you that did not go over, uh, uh, when when they did that, um, and, you know, and the next but they kill them, so the next person comes, the next character comes, and makes the argument that the fans do, which is basically saying, you know, Batman needs a Robin. That's just how it goes. Right. Um, you have to take me because Batman needs a Robin. And, you know, you, want, you can understand in certain ways, uh, you know, that side of the, uh, the impulse as well. So, uh, you know, one of the things, so, so I think that's an interesting sort of tension and push and pull, sort of the tension of the new the unrepresented, the underrepresented uh, in terms of story, in terms of diversity, and sort of the saying of, wait a minute, you know, this has been this way. Um, my, my, The shock of unfamiliar uh, is, is, is difficult for, for some people.
5: But now are they swinging too far to the other side? Uh, listen, you know, I've got uh, people through my friends and family that are homosexual in nature, but now it seems like in the DC universe specifically, they've now, uh, Superboy is gay or bisexual, the new Robin is gay, uh, this character's gay. It's like everybody's coming out of closets now. They feel this need to flip every superhero into a different ethnicity or different sex or sexual preference. Uh, not necessarily even for a story, but just to try to placate people, do you feel that there's a problem with that?
3: I think that, you know, for me, the criterion is always going to be whether or not um, I'm hearing a new story that, that is interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's something that serves, you know, a, a powerful statement, then, then that's fantastic. Um, if, it, if it is, uh, you know, resonating, that's fantastic. If it's something that's done, you know, uh, for a stunt, um, then you know it, it should be treated as it is for a stunt. But uh, you know, in, you know, so it's a, it's always going to be a case by case basis uh, for certain kinds of things. But the thing itself, I don't have a problem with. I think it's just you right. know, those are right. always the criteria uh, that it has to be. And I and I suspect that uh, you know many of the, all of the creators, nobody. I think maybe maybe some of the corporate haunches, you know, about different stunts. But nobody who's writing these stories sets out to say, I'm just going to do a stunt because I don't care about the story that I tell. That, you know, that's not really how these creators work. They say, you know, I, I think this is an important story, to so tell. I'm going to try and tell it uh, as best and as honestly as I possibly can. Particularly now, I think that, you know, in the 30s and 40s, there was much more of an attitude uh, of, you know what, it's Thursday. We've got to get this story out. Um, because we got, you know, and now people think, like, oh, these are stories that we want to tell, and they're important. And so, you
0: know, we'll see what happens. I know you only got a couple of minutes left, Jeremy, but I do have to bring up the, the at one time, living god of comics for all Minnesotans, and of course, that would have been Charles Schultz. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Ah. Amazing. Yeah. St. Paul, I, I, Minnesota's I mean, own.
3: <laughs> what what a guy, you know, and and you know, he's one of these. You know, uh, one of one of these characters uh, that has not only received all of the popular uh, uh, adulation that he deserves, but he's also received all the critical approbation that he deserves. Right? He yeah. really, yeah. uh, you know, when 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 the the, the sort of most elite highbrow uh, comic company in the in the United you know, States, Fantagraphics. Sort of reprinted all of the collected Peanuts. You know, they get President Obama, you know, to write an introduction, right? I mean, this is somebody, you know, <laughs> just, it, it, it's it's amazing, and and he deserves it. You know, you read these comics, and you're like, how can you get such profundity, you know, into these into in such depth uh, into these into these couple of panels? Um, and, and 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 it's like a, it's like Fred Astaire. You know, you you you, you, you don't understand how it can look so simple and yet just be so amazing at the
0: same time. No question. Jeremy Dauber, D-A-U-B-E-R. The book is available everywhere. Certainly go to Amazon. The sweeping story of cartoons, comic strips, and graphic novels, their hold on the American imagination. I'm glad they have a hold on the American imagination because it helped me as a child. I can guarantee you that. Jeremy, please come back. I'd love to talk more about the the psychology and and the politics and all of it about, about cartoons. I'd love to have that conversation with you.
3: That's great. Let's do it. I'd love that. That
0: would be wonderful. Thank you, sir. Have a great day.
3: Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for so much, everyone.
0: Oh. Jeremy Dauber, ladies and gentlemen, the book again is called American Comics, A History. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes with the family. And we are back with stretches picks. Who's winning this thing? The Kiddies, the Pack, the Bears, or the Purple? None of the above. Those are all the teams in the division. I know that. Well, who's your pick?
1: I'm going with Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning.
0: What? It's not a football team.
1: Sabre is one of the largest Bryant dealers in the state, which means you save. Yep, I'm going with Sabre, Sabre and Bryant, doing whatever it takes to keep
0: you comfortable. Oh, uh, one more thing, Tom. What's that? Visit SaberHeating.com.
4: Hello, I'm Brad Huckle, President and Chief Lending Officer at North American Banking Company.
2: And I'm Mike Bilski, CEO at North American Banking Company, Bradley's partner.
4: As a locally owned and operated community bank, we work with a lot of multi-generational, family-owned businesses.
2: Take Raymond Auto Body of St. Paul, for example. Four generations of the Slomkowski family having successfully run the business.
4: When they were ready to expand, we helped them acquire a new building, allowing them to service more vehicles in their state-of-the-art shop.
2: We've also helped them set up the next generation of owners, keeping the business and family for years to come.
0: Tom here. If you want a family business like me, or any business, you should be banking with Brad and Mike over at North American Banking Company. I know them, trust them with my banking. Every time I deal with them or their team, I know I'm working with experienced, professional
2: bankers.
4: Sounds like we really won you over, Tommy.
0: Well, let's not get crazy, Brad. Seriously, why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company? A better banking experience, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. Tom here, and I really love my pillow. And now they're offering my pillow towels, 100% USA cotton. You get two bath, two hand, and two washcloths, 60-day money-back guarantee, and right now my pillow towels, originally priced $109.99, now a flash sale, $39.99 with promo code KQRS. This amazing deal is yours by going to the radio listener specials at MyPillow.com. Enter promo code KQRS. That's MyPillow.com, promo code KQRS. <laughs> I love this song. That's all I have to tell you. Thank you again to Jeremy Dauber, Professor Columbia, Professor Jeremy Dauber, talking about cartoons, comic books, all the rest of it. Because I didn't really think about that until I talked to uh, Jeremy about this. That that comics influenced my childhood. There's no question about that. I wanted to be Richie Rich. No, I don't. Like I said, I didn't become a billionaire, so it didn't really work out. But.
1: There's you still know, time. The, there's
0: still yeah. Sounds <laughs> like Twitter talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right, ladies and gentlemen. Just you invent know,
1: invent something huge.
5: Tom, though, you're talking about the influence. Now, look, the comics' biggest boon was the late '60s, '70s, and '80s. The
1: Silver Era, yeah. Right,
5: and now you have to consider all of those kids that grew up reading that. That really kind of concentrated, amazing era of art and storytelling are now adults running movie companies. That's why we're seeing yeah, superheroes yeah, and Godzilla yep. and anime That's at true. its apex right now. You know, which sadly means in about ten years, it's all going to be Pokemon and and uh, My Little Pony. But at oh, this point, at least is, we're getting me. we're getting some uh, decent <laughs> nerd review. This is our chance to step up. Hey, yeah. don't
1: don't dis Pokemon. Andy was the biggest fan of Pokemon.
5: Oh, he yeah. was! I caught all of them, all 150. Yeah, but the funny you thing did? is, mm-hmm. oh, in the Pokemon Go game?
3: Uh, no, in the Pokemon original oh, game, that's right. Game Boy Pokemon Red.
0: Ew.
3: I got every last one. I was so proud.
0: <laughs> it so I
1: mean, proud. I was also Shit. 12,
5: so you know. I had. Uh, I grew up watching all the Croft Super Shows and fun cartoons on Saturday morning. And mm. One of my favorites was Land of the Lost.
1: Mm-hmm. And when oh, they released
5: sure. it on DVD. I bought the complete DVD set I brought it home, I sat all of my kids down so there's like six of us in the living room I pop it in, I make popcorn, we're gonna watch, forget Jurassic Park kids this, this is dinosaurs this is, and we watched five minutes of it and one by one each one of my kids kind of st- slowly stood up and looked at me and shook their head and walked into the other room and uh, it did not live up to my memory and the uh, the childlike hype I had for it, it Never does. but I had to laugh because I'm like you know you might be shaking your head at me right now, but in 30 years, you're going to be sitting down with your kids and popping in Pokemon. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, they're man. going to be yep. listening to cartoons, Pika, Pika, Pikachu, mm. Pika, yeah. Pika, and your maybe kids are going to look at you kidding. like you've been licking too many pika outlets. Pika. <laughs> yeah
1: But I'm wrong. Pika. Pika, pika.
5: Pokemon's just as big now, 30 years later, Pish. as it was when yeah, it came yeah, out. I'm it's crazy. Sure it's, it's probably
1: bigger, honestly. I have a friend who just had a baby boy named Charlie, and I was like, how do you feel about me calling him Charmander? Mm. And she was like,
4: not <laughs> good, Alex. Yeah, name. there you go.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. Chameleon, <laughs> yeah. We have. Uh, is Reverend Tim in studio? Yes, he He's is. Here. Reverend Tim, how are you? I'm doing good, sir. How you doing? Never, never better is all I know. Well, that's a I good need thing.
1: To, I, I need to give a little backstory on the. Reference. Oh, oh
0: she, here, my wife's got a backstory. Here she we go. Okay, <laughs> I've been
1: following you on Twitter for I don't even know, a couple of years I think. And you're the highlight of Twitter for me. <laughs>
4: well, there you go. Well, well, that, well, my day is done. Yeah, I, right. am, I can go home and, and be a proud man right now.
1: Uh, he goes after everybody. It's like, Good. if it's wrong, it's wrong. That's it. <laughs> yes,
0: you know, that's what life is all about. Now, uh, we we got to start at the very beginning. Uh, Reverend Tim Christopher in studio with us, ladies and gentlemen. i got to ask. Uh, because I probably lived in the house you lived in, because I lived in like thirty-five different houses in North Minneapolis, <laughs> so I probably eventually lived in one of the houses you lived in if you moved around at
4: all. I we moved around a little bit until we finally settled down in one house. <laughs> yes, sir. It, yes, sir. where was that house? Uh, Twenty-seven, twenty-nine North Third Street. It was right behind oh, sure. the Fairview Park. Uh, yep. right there on the freeway. It was right in the middle of everything that was going down. I was, you know, mm. a couple blocks off of Broadway. Couple blocks off of Lindell and right off Penn, so uh, everything that went down was pretty much in my in, in my area.
0: One of my favorite stories about that because I grew up all the way from every I mean, Eleventh and Eleventh uh, and Fourth Street down there, even south of to- Plymouth Avenue, mm-hmm. to all the way up to thirty three fifteen Russell Avenue North was the last place. I mean, I lived in everywhere in, in in North (laughs) Minneapolis, but one of my favorite things about where you lived, that whole area down there, we lived at 2201 6th Street North for a long time, but right by your house, just about two or three blocks away, there's a church on the corner of Lindale and 26th. Yep. It's right down there, right? Yeah, big church. And I'm walking through the neighborhood one day, and I looked over. And somebody stole Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
1: never
5: forget it. <laughs> you you look... say stole. Maybe they just found Jesus. <laughs> yeah, maybe but they I, found Jesus. Like that. yeah.
4: That's true.
0: They may have found like Jesus. That. They
4: found it. <laughs> finally, finally. Hey, a little, um, little, little story here real quick, if you don't mind. I love uh, it. I'm, I I'm, love it. Uh, I, I've been a fan of yours all the way back in the day. Um, oh when God. I When I first got here to Minnesota, Uh, I used to pull wire. I do security systems for a living. And uh, I used to go into all these homes that were, you know, just built. And you had the electricians and the plumbers and everybody in there. And um, man, electricians and plumbers love you to death. And I remember back in the KQ days. Anytime I would go into these buildings, you would be on the air. That's how I. That's how I. It caught on with, with me. You caught on with me. Was listening when I would go in there. All the guys would have their radios. I mean, it'd be four radios in there, and every single one of them is on your station. And um uh, so I d I didn't have a choice but to uh become a fan. So <laughs> so I'm a Well thank you,
2: Reverend. I'm a, I'm now, a, I'm a fan. <laughs> now you know how his he kids
4: stu- feel. Oh, <laughs> is that how you that, I met your daughter on the way in there. So yeah, I'm his yeah. son too. Oh oh yeah. all three of you guys. Yeah. Okay. And then and then your one son over here. I don't oh, know no, I don't he, know he, what you I don't know what I would be happy to be one. That's I I don't, I don't know what you did to him, but he's got this funny looking sweatshirt on. Oh dear. Uh, oh, um. When when I come Coming in from a
5: Packer backer,
0: he got. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, Reverend Tim's a Packer fan. Well,
4: he's wearing yes, a but, Packer
1: sweatshirt, and I got
4: a, I got my Packer sweatshirt on, so I had to represent. And then <laughs> I come in, and he's got a Viking shirt anyway. Uh I'm not going to start with him, but I like his Pika Man uh, story he had, so now I, I like him anyway.
0: So we're good to go. We're good to go on that one. We're good to go. <laughs> So, uh, Reverend Tim, how old were you when you when you moved to North Minneapolis? I,
4: I moved to North Minneapolis in 1996. Shoot, I okay, 96. All right. It. Yeah. So yeah, we, we bought our first house there when Mayor Shell Sales Belton was having that program that she was trying to bring back uh, bring back the community when they would tear a house down, and then mm-hmm. build a brand new one, and you give them two thousand dollars and they'll give you a brand new house. Yeah. Uh, we got into that program. And um, they promised us that they were going to keep doing that, knocking down some of these blight houses that these crack users and dope fiends were living out of and causing the neighborhood's problems.
5: Why did you look at me when you said dope fiends and
4: crackers?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Viking sweatshirts really (laughs) under
4: your skin. Read
1: the room, (laughs) Dave. Read the
4: room. (laughs) There you have it yeah oh, so that that that's that's how that's how i I started and, and then my um my church over there Berea missionary baptist church right there mm-hmm. on the corner of Lindell and 30th um yeah you know i I got into it i, I don't know if you remember spike moss and all those guys oh, sure, yeah. yeah i used to walk with spike moss and, and do some things with him and try to help the community that way and And then I just fell out of it because, you know, I didn't see these politicians doing anything. And and we went about our way for a while. And then the people in the church was like, you know, you got to do something. You got to say something. And I'm sitting here going, I don't know what to do and I don't know what to say. And then I went to the Democrats, the people that I voted for. And they basically looked at me and said, are you crazy? Uh, we're not going to help you do anything. And, and that, that, that's what got me started. That's what got me back in the game because my own people that I voted for decided that they wasn't even going to give me a time of day. I can't even get Bobby Champion. I can't even get that man to call me back. And, and that's his really? district, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, you know, even when uh, the COVID hit and we was out there feeding the, the community. Um, I didn't get any help from the Democrats. All the help I got was from Republicans. I mean, they was really? coming out of Buffalo. They were coming out of way up in, in uh, Isante's and every place else, bringing truckloads of food. That's how I felt the community during this pandemic. That, that's that, wonderful. That, that, That's a true story. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't get any help. Uh, only, only Democrat that has ever sat down with me is Senator Dietrich. She's the only one that gave mm. me any any time of day at all and i think mainly it's because i believe in the, the second amendment uh, i'm a 2 A fighter all day all day i'll fight for the right to have a firearm because it's like i tell them the places i go you will never go and the places i go they <laughs> right. got you, you understand what i'm saying oh <laughs> um, i do yeah, the, yeah I they, do. they they have guns bigger than my gun so yep I, i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be a uh a hen walking in, into a, a fox house, and um, no, that that's just listen. Uh oh. What, what, Catherine, what, what Catherine, <laughs> Catherine? said, "Wait."
1: <laughs> I just, I was confused.
4: Yeah,
0: she's <laughs> not a problem. <laughs> I will tell you something, Reverend Tim, and this this might give you a bit of perspective. But but I'm sure you've heard about this before. As a little boy. Growing up in North Minneapolis, we moved to North Minneapolis when I was five years old. A little bit, that was over on 11th and Fourth, right? The old St. Joe's Parish, but that was long gone by the time you had moved in there. Mm-hmm. But but as a little boy, starting on Fourth and Plymouth, and then growing up all the way through, moving to 33rd and and Russell. You know, 35 oh, houses later. Oh
4: goodness, 33rd <laughs> and Russell, man. Yeah.
0: I got to tell you, though, Reverend Tim, that walking down Plymouth Avenue back when I was a little boy, there were delis, there were bowling alleys, there were movie theaters, there were drugstores. It was a a thriving, wonderful era, right? Um, But I will never forget this. I was seven years old at the time. We lived at uh, 914-15. Basically, it was uh, Plymouth and Bryant. Because there is no no Colfax there, it was, and Bryant went right to Dupont. Yep. So uh, so we lived right there at 14th uh, 14th and, and Bryant, just a block off of Plymouth Avenue. And my mother sent me to the store, the Dupont Cash Market right there in the corner of Dupont and Plymouth back when I was a little boy. And I will never forget this, and I'm bringing it up because you're you. I'm standing <laughs> on the corner, and it's there's a little snow falling because it's just a few days. It might have been just the day before Christmas, actually, the Christmas Eve. And she sent me to the store to get something. And I was standing there on the corner about to cross the street. And this car pulled up and a man dressed in a suit and a woman wearing a really snazzy, snazzy dress. And they had two little kids in the back seat. And I, I looked at them and the woman looked at me. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'm a seven-year-old boy standing on the corner right there, DuPont and Plymouth. The woman looked back at her children and said, lock your doors. We're in N-Town.
4: <laughs>
0: I will never forget that, Reverend Tim. I looked out of my hand like, well, wait a
4: second.
0: Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> wait,
4: wait a second. Wait a <laughs> but that was
0: an education for me, Reverend Tim, that... that I learned that day that the skin color wasn't the biggest part of, uh, of the deal to them as it appears to most people in politics now. It was the fact that I was poor. They didn't want to be anywhere near me because I was a poor kid.
4: That's right and, and,
0: and it's a fact.
4: I, I'm, I'm glad you said that I, I'm so glad you said that because well, see you. one of the things that I, I keep preaching and I'm, I'm going to keep preaching the same word until people start listening. People don't people people always think that there's only poor black people. That lives right, in North Minneapolis, right. sir. Right, yep. and yep. what they don't realize is this: this season, this Christmas season, we helped uh, four um, poor white families. Uh, yep. We gave with the toys that we we furnished for their kids, the clothes that we gave them, but no one ever speaks for them. They don't have a voice, right? Um, they don't. They, the, you're the, right. The poor black people have a, a voice. Just the, the black activists have a voice. Anybody that's down there that has a voice uh, can, can speak up. But who's speaking up for the poor white people that are down there?
0: God, you're. Th- I, I love you even more now, Reverend Tim. I, that is exactly right. And nobody will believe me when I tell them. Thank you. They just I, won't believe it.
4: Sir, I, I say the same thing. I tell people all the time. I I, I I have people on my Twitter page who gets mad at me when when I start talking about white people, and I'm not joking. They they right. boy no, they they get they get upset. I can talk about black people all day. I can put them down, call them names, but the minute I start talking about the poor white people, people get upset. And I'm sitting there yep. going, "Wait a minute, yep. do they not have a right to have their voices heard by somebody? Because you're well, not they- telling the story." the the the, the politicians the white politicians are not telling the story the black mm-hmm. politicians are not telling the story the black activists are not telling their story who tells their story nobody well i'm going to start telling their story whether people like it or not because somebody has to do something for them somebody because what happens is whatever the black community gets the crumbs that falls off the table is what the poor white person get and that's a true story whether people want to believe it or not or whether 100%. it hurt their feelings of me saying that. But I'm going to say it because there's a lot of poor white people down there that's going, hey, look at us. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. What, why can't you go to, go to one of these people who are always shouting, white lives matter? What, where, where are those people? Where are the white lives matter <laughs> yeah, people exactly. to help you out? Yep. I, I don't see them anywhere around, but the minute someone says black lives matter, the White Lives Matter people show up and go, oh, well, white lives matter too. Okay, then go down there on, on Knox. And, I mean, go down there on Bryant and 20 thirty-third, 20, where you was talking about and go help some of them white people. I ain't seen not one white person down there doing jack for them people. But yet my foundation furnished the, the whole Christmas for a, a whole bunch of them down there. So that's why I tell people, if you're going to get me, for saying something about black people, helping black people, building black people mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. get me for saying something about helping white people. I, 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 I don't see no color here. The man that raised me, my stepfather, Tom, is as white as you. He's from Boise, Idaho. And he taught me a lot about how to treat, just just basically how to treat people, not because of their skin color, because but, but because of the way that I treat you the way you treat me. All right, Correct. you call me yep. a dog. I'm gonna call you a dog. And I know people sit there and go, "Well, you're not supposed to say that type of stuff. You're a reverend. I'm a I'm a street reverend, right? I'll take this cross off real quick. So I, I, I tell people, do not get this thing crooked. Do not get it crooked. I, I, I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a Peter, and people don't understand when I say that. Uh, this man saw, this man saw Jesus do all of these miracles. But yet and still he still drew his sword and pulled and, and cut somebody's ear off right in front of Jesus. That's me. That that that's that that I'm that type of Christian. I'm still got these tendencies in inside me that'll come out every once in a while. So mm-hmm. that that's how that worked. But no, I am I'm, I'm glad you I'm so glad you brought that up about the people who are down there that's in impoverished, in that that I, I look at and say, oppressed that people never talk about.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And I've talked about it. I've done speeches for, God, I suppose, 40 years now, uh, at least 35 years. And I tell people, look, there, there is a skin color deal. There's there are people that don't like you because of your skin color. There's no doubt about that. But the number one reason that you're hated is not your skin color, whether it's white, black, or whatever. It's the fact that you are poor. They hate you if you're poor. Mm-hmm. And that's a fact.
4: Mm-hmm. No.
0: That, I mean, that's just an absolute fact, and I'm glad that I finally met someone who knows what the hell I'm talking about <laughs> when I say that. Honestly, because people go, oh, that's BS, there's no way. And by the way, I just got a text message from someone who said, did that woman in the car actually say N-Town? No, she did not. No, <laughs> <boy, I hope laughs> N-Town. Sounds
1: like a boy hope.
0: band. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: N-Town. The- sounds <laughs> like, yeah, N-Town, we- <laughs> <open. laughs>
0: <laughs> Reverend Tim, you got another hour, I hope.
4: No, I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm here for
0: as long as you need me. All right. We're going to take a very quick break, just a few minutes here. We'll be back with Reverend Tim Christopher. I am very excited to have you in studio. And by the way, I am a huge fan and a friend of Joe Sushre's. I understand you talk to Joe quite often. I, I yes, think sir. the world of him. He's a great guy. Good people. Really good guy. Good people. Very smart man, too, no doubt. <laughs> we will be back second hour. Reverend Tim Christopher in studio. This is going to be a barn burner of an episode. I'm just <laughs> telling you. We'll be back.